Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, summer safety in Minnesota, the summer screen time dilemma, and a recap of the Gopher softball team's memorable season. But first, Republican leaders of the Minnesota legislature this week continued preparing to sue Governor Dayton after he signed the state budget bills but vetoed funding for the legislature's day-to-day operations. Dayton did it after GOP lawmakers put a rider in the tax cut bill to ensure he signed it. It is unfortunate that your last-minute legislative treachery has left me no other option. Dayton told Republicans funding for the legislature can be restored if they agree to undo several tax breaks in the bill he just signed, including reductions in the tobacco tax, estate tax, and business property taxes, plus repeal changes to teacher licensing laws and cancel the just-enacted ban on driver's licenses for illegal immigrants. House Speaker Kurt Doubt responded, I will not sit down with the governor and renegotiate something he already agreed to. MNN's Bill Werner is here with the latest developments in the continuing dispute between the governor and Republicans. Scott, things ramped up late last week when Republican leaders of the legislature hired a lawyer threatening legal action against what they say is Dayton's violation of the separation of powers clause in the Minnesota Constitution. That states that no one in the legislative, executive, or judicial branches, unless otherwise specified, shall exercise any of the powers properly belonging to the other branches. On Tuesday, the governor sent a letter to legislative leaders inviting them to meet with him, quote, in an effort to negotiate the differences which remain outstanding from the last legislative session. Dayton said in Mankato that afternoon the just-enacted tax cut bill threatens Minnesota's future fiscal stability. The tax bill in particular would cost uh, the Department of Revenue estimates the state of Minnesota $5 billion dollars in lost revenues over the next decade. That's the difference between having a a budget surplus and a budget deficit. That's the difference between being able to weather a a national economic downturn and having one that pushes us over the brink once again to a fiscal disaster. The governor added, My goal is is, is not to go into court. My goal is to negotiate and work out a resolution here that's a It's good for the people of Minnesota. That's the reason to do this. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka said although he is always willing to listen to the governor's point of view, he's not interested in reopening issues already signed into law. So where will this all go from here? We talked about that with Hamlin University professor and constitutional law expert David Schultz. I actually think that the Republicans might go on a two-track strategy. They might first... uh, uh, get in the position of filing the lawsuit so they can put pressure on the governor from that direction, and then at the same time perhaps also agree to enter into some negotiation. I don't think they want to be in the position politically of looking like they're not trying to negotiate. Um, and so I think they'll do that. But also, if they've already filed the lawsuit while they're going to talk with the governor, they have some legal leverage, you know, because the governor can't be sure what's actually going to happen in terms of what's, what the courts would do in terms of the lawsuit. So I see some kind of a combination of both of them going on. Do you think, and and clearly in any legal proceeding, there's uncertainty for each of the parties involved, almost always. Um, But do you think, is there a level of uncertainty for uh, Republicans as well? And can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, there is a potential for uncertainty, because even though I think in a straight-out lawsuit challenging the governor's ability to use the line-item veto to essentially shut down the legislature... 
even though I think there's a high probability that the courts would rule in favor of the legislature, they could take a different approach. And it was an approach that happened a couple of months ago in New Mexico, where the Republican governor there uh, line-item vetoed out funding for the legislature. The case went to the New Mexico Supreme Court, and the New Mexico Supreme Court said, the case is not ripe for review. We're not going to hear it. You folks go back and negotiate more or go back and try to resolve this. One possibility could be um, that the Minnesota Supreme Court eventually says that, in this case, no, you folks go solve this before we intervene. That's the variable they have to, to worry about is the fact that that the Supreme Court won't actually take the case or, the, or that the Minnesota courts won't take the case, and it puts them in the position of what? Um, having to actually come back to the bargaining table if they want to get their salary and get the legislature up and running. You know, you offer an interesting theory there about what happened in New Mexico, and, and it, in some ways it, it rings true, doesn't it? Because, because the courts have been, ha, have been very hands-off, uh, I, I think it would be fair to say, uh, when, when, in, in regards to disputes between the legislative and the executive branch, at least as, as hands-off as they can possibly be, right? Um, yes and no. Okay. Yes, they're generally hands-off, but on the other hand, several mm-hmm. years ago, when Governor Pawlenty had a dispute with the legislature regarding his unallotment authority, the Minnesota court, uh, Minnesota court system did step in, and the Supreme Court ruled against the governor. Mm-hmm. So when push comes to shove, uh, the Minnesota Supreme Court will actually step in if it has to resolve these issues. And so I think that's what creates the uncertainty in this matter, is that will the, the courts actually intervene? And if so, how will they intervene? And two, if they don't, in this case, if they don't intervene, that works probably against the legislature and strengthens the governor's hand. And so I think these are some of the calculations that the Republican leadership in the House and the Senate have to think through as they're sort of contemplating both the lawsuit and at the same time how they respond to the governor's request for negotiations. Well, let me ask you this, Professor. Um when a when a court does step in in a dispute between uh, a legislative branch and executive branch of government, what generally are the criteria that they use? I mean, you, you've watched some of these cases. Uh, when might they step in? When might they not step in? Well, generally, they're going to step in when they believe that the case is ripe for review, which means mm-hmm. at that point, you know, the, the parties have exhausted all of their other remedies for resolving the matter and that the court needs to step in. Two, when there's a a serious, in this case, constitutional question that needs to be resolved that only the courts can resolve. And so those would probably be, I think, two of of the factors you'd want to look at over time. I think a third factor is going to be to what extent, perhaps, do the powers of one branch negate or or let us say significantly diminish the core functions of another branch. And that would also be sort of a situation that we potentially see here. So those usually are the three criteria that I have seen that dictate when the Minnesota Supreme Court steps in or the Minnesota court system in general steps in. And then perhaps we might throw a fourth in there is, is the failure to act going to cause irreparable harm to some people, okay, right. especially mm-hmm. third parties. So I think the courts will also step in in those situations to prevent, let us say, third party or collateral damage. Hamlin University Professor David Schultz. And so, Scott, in the continuing battle between Governor Dayton and the Republican legislature, we are seeing some tactical maneuvers by both sides, but what strategies emerge may ultimately be dictated by the courts. Thank you for that report, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. 
We asked kids what it took to be a dad. This is what they had to say. A father is always present. I mean, what, father, what real father figure can you have if they're not there? In order to be a good dad, you need to love, love your son. You need to put gas in your car so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. And you need to make some breakfast. Yep. I mean, just to maybe um, play like a board game with me or to just stay home and play um, some video games with me. Just to do like that one little thing is what I really look forward to. I'm not asking him to be a perfect dad, but he should try. He's just a constant force in my life. There's no other type of love like a dad's love because it's not comparable to anything else. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. With school ending and summer beginning, many of us are finding it a challenge to get our kids to minimize their screen time. I must admit, I'm dealing with it in my own home. I recently chatted with Park Nicolet's Dr. Nathan Chomolo about what it takes to put down the screens and enjoy the summer. What do we know about the, the impact of uh, screen time on young minds? Well, uh, not as much as we'd like, Scott. Uh, what we forget is that screens like tablets and iPhones have only really been around for about 10 years. And so the science behind how they impact our youngest minds is still developing. That said, we do know that in the very youngest of our kiddos, underneath the age of two, that uh, they don't learn from screens the way we would have hoped. And so more screen time can actually take us away from things that do help build their brain and their development. Uh, and, and that way, screens can be potentially harmful um, as we get older, uh, sc- uh, screens do potentially play a role in how we learn and interact with others. And, of course, as we head into the summer here, a lot for a lot of kids, their routine is changing, and they don't have quite as much of a, a regimented schedule during the course of the day, which can possibly mean more screen time. Uh, tell me a little bit about what folks can do, and parents, especially out there listening, can, can do to try to uh, find alternatives to their screen time. Yeah, I think being very intentional about it, sitting down with your older children at the beginning of the summer, coming up with some goals, and not maybe just focusing on screens, but talk about goals that they want to do throughout the summer. Uh, If there's some different number of books they want to read, different places they want to go, uh, if they wanted to be spending more time uh, practicing a certain skill, um, but kind of setting some goals. And then within that framework, uh, talking more specifically about uh, how they see themselves using screens, Uh, There is a great tool through the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, the Family Media Plan Toolkit. It's a website uh, tool that you can log in and enter in your children's names and uh, ages and kind of come up with a plan that you print out at home uh, around when we are going to use screens and what are some other activities that we can do outside of screens. But really trying to focus on uh, spending the time to get outdoors, um, in my blog article, we talked about things as uh, simple as gardening, where we can uh, even just using potted plants uh, start to kind of get an appreciation for uh, growing things and maybe appreciation for healthy eating. Um, 
as well as other activities that maybe seem a bit more laborious, like chores, but they can uh, institute uh, some other uh, responsibilities and kind of help develop other uh, qualities in our kids that we are hoping for. Yeah, of course, part of the responsibility is the, the kids, but also it falls to the parents as well. And I know as a parent, sometimes it can be easy to say, well, if they're on screen time, they're occupied and I can get the things done that I need to get done. What recommendation do you have for parents uh, to try to avoid that, that trap of just letting their kids uh, um, while away the hours with screen time? Yeah, and that's, that's particularly uh, attractive for our younger children uh, because... Uh, they can just become kind of mystified by the screens themselves. Uh, we do know that uh, you know screens impact several areas in particular, uh, sleep being one of the big ones, and so trying not to uh, have that screen time right before we go to sleep. But uh, also with our younger children, uh, an area that ch- uh, parents often use screens for is to try to calm them down and use them almost as a, a calming tool. And that can interfere with the child's own ability uh, to calm themselves. And so once they get to school and they have to sit still for a while, they have a harder time focusing, a harder time paying attention and uh, without a screen in front of them to calm them down. And that can become a real problem. And so uh, talking to parents, I usually say, you know, our screen use matters just as much as theirs at these ages. So being really aware of how much we're using screens ourselves, uh, because the more we use screens, children notice that, they start to act out, uh, trying to get our attention, and the more parents use screens, that shows uh, there is evidence that there's increased child and parent conflict, and that our screen use is indicative of or predictor of children's future screen use. I'm curious, do you have uh, parents that come into you and, and ask you uh, your recommendations about how to limit screen time? So not often directly, but what I often do here is, uh, you know, struggles with sleep um, and struggles with focus. And so then I start to unpack, you know, what are we doing at home when we're not doing our schoolwork? And we, uh, our parents and children are quick to talk about how they might be on screens uh, for three, four, or more hours a day, even on school days. And so we kind of talk about what are our goals um, and, and how can we use screens effectively but not have them consume our lives. Good information, Doctor. I've enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Scott. More Minnesota Matters after this. Sometimes a simple idea can be developed into something big that can change the world. This is Katy Perry. In fourth grade, my music teacher helped me make a vision board. It was a collage that represented all of my hopes and aspirations in music. But what if my teacher didn't have the supplies we needed to make our collages? What if I never got the chance to learn and express my dreams? Unfortunately, that's the reality our teachers face every day. They're forced to spend their own money, sometimes just to keep the classroom running. That's why I'm teaming up again with Staples for Students to donate $1 million to DonorsChoose.org, a charity that helps teachers get what they need to bring learning to life for students. DonorsChoose.org has helped fulfill more than 700,000 classroom projects, benefiting more than 18 million students. It's an idea that's changing the world. It's easy to help. 
donate in Staples stores or learn more at staplesforstudents.org. Technology moves at the speed of innovation. And today, that's lightning fast. So when you get your hands on the latest tech, don't forget to do the right thing with your old devices. Recycle them. The Consumer Electronics Association and its members are making recycling your old tech device as easy as purchasing new ones. Just go to greenergadgets.org, type in your zip code, and you'll instantly find the responsible recycling location closest to your home. You'll also find lots of tips to simplify your recycling, like asking the store where you buy your new TV if they'll haul away your old one. Television sets, video game consoles, smartphones, tablets, they're all recyclable. Don't let them clog up your local landfill. Just visit greenergadgets.org. You're sharp enough to get the latest tech tools into your home. Now be responsible enough to get your old devices to the recycler. That's greenergadgets.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. With temperatures expected to climb into the mid and upper 90s this weekend, it's safe to bet many Minnesotans will be hitting the water to cool off. MN's Tasha Radel reminds us it's already been a deadly start to the season on Minnesota lakes and rivers, and officials are reminding us safety needs to come first. That's right, Scott. Temperatures are forecasted to be in the 90s with heat indices into the 100s. Parts of southwestern Minnesota could even see temperatures climb into the low 100s. This is the warmest weather we've seen since last July. Joining me now is Lisa Dugan with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources to talk about summer safety. Lisa, I understand we're off to a deadly start this boating and water season. 2016, we had 17 um, boating fatalities, and this year, 2017, already we have um, four boating fatalities and eight confirmed drownings, and unfortunately, it looks like those numbers may be rising as well. So that's um, 10 Minnesotan lives could be saved each year if people were wearing their life jackets when on the water. And that's a really big number. And that's, I think at the end of the day, we want our families to be coming home safe when we're out recreating on the water. There is absolutely any number higher than zero for either boating and drowning fatalities is too high. And I think the main message to get across to whether you're swimming or boating or angling or paddling, anyone that's on the water really needs to put their safety first and put on their life jacket, whether they're in the water or on the water. That's going to really be your one piece of equipment that should something happen unexpected, that's going to be how you keep your head above water and it'll help get you to safety. Lisa, with warmer temperatures moving in this weekend, you can pretty much bet that all lakes, rivers, and different swimming beaches will be busy. What is the main message you're wanting to get across this weekend? It would be great to see um, the kids wearing life jackets, even if they've taken swimming lessons. If not, take those steps to get your kids in swimming lessons and learn what drowning looks like. It's typically not what you see on TV where it's dramatized and arms flailing in the air. Drowning typically is actually very silent. People aren't able to call out for help. You'll see that their head might be tipped back as if they're you know, bobbing up and down trying to gasp for air. So just knowing those signs and being able to know what to look for on the water um, you know, can help, help you save somebody, it may help you recognize somebody who's in need. Lisa, I'm not sure if you can answer this, but how long does it actually take for someone to drown? It can happen actually very quickly. Within as little as 10 seconds, um, a drowning can occur. And that's 
you know, with enough of a gasp of, if you're trying to get air and you intake water, that could be enough that you're not going to be able to, you know, your panic sets in. Um, it, it can be very fast, and it's very scary to, to think about that, how quickly it can happen, but it's um, maybe just going back to the point of having somebody watching people in the water or having a buddy system, making sure you're out with somebody else. And there's a great little tip that you can have if you're with a group of friends or family. Have a designated person um, either wearing, you know, like a brightly colored bracelet or holding on to something that, that designates them as you are the person watching the kids in the water. Um, not on your phone, not reading a book, so that there's always eyes either in the water with the kids or watching them. It's, it's just it's an, something easy that we can do that, again, you know, could help somebody get them out of the water if they need help. Switching gears a little bit, let's visit a minute about boating. I understand a number of boating fatalities involve alcohol, another reason it's so important to designate a sober driver. Um, I like to say designate a sober skipper. It seems to work well. People stick with it. But um, nearly 50% of our boating fatalities um, involve alcohol. So we need to make sure you have someone driving you around safely on the water. And then once you're done, um, off the water, on the roads as well, get, make sure you're getting all the way home safely. Designate somebody who can operate the boat, knows the boat, and that's not going to be drinking throughout the day. You can still have fun and enjoy yourself. But we just want to make sure everybody gets home at the end of the day. Thanks again to my guest, Lisa Dugan, with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. For more information on boat and water safety, head to the DNR's website. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. More Minnesota Matters in a minute. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you, A, put yourself in her shoes? How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she, she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. Is now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Golden Gophers softball team was thrust into the national spotlight last month when they earned the number one national ranking, yet did not receive a top 16 seed in the NCAA tournament. That meant instead of playing home games to open the postseason, they had to play at national attendance leader Alabama, where the 56-win Gophers lost twice to end their season. Head coach Jessica Allister sat down with MN Sports Director Mike Grimm this past week to talk about how she's handling the entire situation. Coach, let's start. I know we don't want to rehash too much of this, but what an emotional time it must have been for you when the uh, you win the Big Ten tournament. You're clearly the best team in the Big Ten. It looks like you're going to get a national seed, and then the trapdoor falls out on you. Take me through that 24-hour uh, period when that all went, and now looking back two weeks from there, what uh, what now runs through your mind? Yeah, it was a, it was a tough week, and I think that. Um the toughest piece, like you said, was uh, it, it caught everybody a little bit by surprise. Um, you know, it was different than than we expected. Um, 
and it, it was it was hard to recover from. You know, at the time, um, you're you're scrambling a little bit to get everybody together and to get everybody ready to go down to Tuscaloosa. You know, I don't I don't think I'd be um, speaking the truth if I said that we walked into that Alabama stadium um, at our best. You know, I think our players did a good job of recovering, but you know, it's a it was a tough week um, and a lot was thrown at them. So. Um, I thought they did a great job. You know, I thought we put ourselves in a position to win both games uh, against a talented team and a great pitcher and a tough environment. Um, so I, I couldn't be more proud of the job that they did. Um, you know, two weeks later, I think it, a couple things. You know, one, you watch you watch the games on TV, and I think it's exciting to think that, um, you know, I watch those teams, and I think we can compete with them. And that's not necessarily something that I've thought in years prior. You know, when I watch them player for player, you know, we, we can compete at that level. Um, and that's exciting. You know, I think also um, the further we get away from it, the the more um, excited you get as you start to think about the season that we had, you know, and it's really important that we celebrate that. So, um, you know, there's highs and lows with it. Um, but overall, you know, unbelievable season, um, you know, the best in Gopher softball history. So nothing but um, nothing but something to be very proud of. Yeah, and that's got to be a hard thing to handle. I mean, almost like a, a situation of uh, you know of despair there because it was so disappointing. But then to take the time to say, don't let that spoil all the good things that happened with this year. Yeah, and I mean that's the message. But you know that's easier said than done. Right. You know, so I think um, I think that was a testament to our seniors. I thought they did a great job, um, and you know they weren't they weren't going to let that. Um, that decision, you know, take away their, their last couple of weeks of ball. So, um, you know, I thought, we, you know, we played pretty well in those games. Uh, we were, couldn't, couldn't come up with the big hit, you know, but we had runners on, um, played some good defense. Sarah Gronwagen was unbelievable in the circle. You know, Pfizer was great in the games we needed her to be great in. Um, so it, it was a good week in a softball. Um, we just need to just got to keep going. Last one about the seeding, I promise. I know that it's nothing to rehash, but have you gotten any answers? Um, is there some way that down the road another – thing like this doesn't happen to some other team, whether it's you again or uh, another Big Ten team specifically. I mean, have you, have you been able to investigate anything or find anything out about this and why this decision was? I know they sent out the, the explanation, but that didn't seem to make sense either. <laughs> yeah, it didn't make any sense. <laughs> um, I, we haven't gotten answers yet. You know, Mark Coyle has been unbelievable, um, went to bat for us right away. Um, through um, both the conference office and um, to the committee and to the NCAA. Um, Commissioner Delaney is getting involved. You know, um, President Kaler reached out. You know, really the support from the administration has been tremendous. You know, I think the, the biggest takeaway, um, you know, it, it was an opportunity to grow the game and an opportunity to have a, um, a national presence. You know, right now it's a little dominated by the, the West and the South, and it's really important that if we want this sport to be a national sport, you know, when we have the opportunity to do that, that it's, um, that it's granted. It's also, I guess if there is some light in the darkness of this situation, is that nothing fires up a fan base like feeling like they've been unjustly seated or what have you and the support I mean we go on these road trips uh, you're on this one we're currently on the last one every time I brought up softball it was instantaneous everybody knows the story everybody's on board I mean in a weird way this could help grow traction you've grown great traction already you're setting attendance records but um, there might be more people on this bandwagon come next year maybe because of this silly thing <laughs> yeah the support's been unbelievable um, even just from the the home media you know we got we got tremendous support um, and, you know, people, people are excited about softball right now. So, um, 
I agree. Yes, a fan base who feels like they didn't get their fair shake absolutely gets upset, especially in Minnesota. <laughs> um, but I, I'd also like to think that's due to the um, tremendous season that our young women have and the product that they put out on the field. Yeah, you were setting attendance records long before this committee decided what they decided. You mentioned the future, um, and there's so many good players coming back. But I do want to talk about Kendall Lindemann because it's not very often a freshman of the year is also the conference's player of the year, and what a year she had. So you have her back, and that's someone certainly to build a batting lineup around, I would think. <laughs> Kendall's special. She's really special. You know, it's funny. People ask us all the time um, if we expected her to do what she did. And, you know, I tell them that, you know, you never expect anyone to do what she did. But were we surprised? Absolutely not. I mean, um, from when we first started watching her play um, back in the summer of her eighth grade year, you know, she is a special, special hitter. Uh, you know, what I was really, really um, impressed with was her maturity throughout a freshman season, um, you know, taking the next step and having to compete at this level is hard. And then getting pitched around um, and challenged in that sense was hard too. And she handled it. Um, she handled it like, like a pro. So um, her maturity level, um, the confidence that she gives to our lineup. And yeah, we're going to have a good offensive lineup next year. You know, we lose Mackin and Gronawagen, um, but we have players who are going to be a year older, a year wiser. Um, we've got some really good incoming recruits coming in um, who are going to make us faster. You know, they're going to give us couple more lefty sticks. I, I, I'm excited about our offense, you know, and our pitching staff. You know, you lose Sarah Gronewagen, which is tough, but um, our pitching staff is going to be great next year. Amber Pfizer had a tremendous year in the circle. You know, Carly Brandt probably didn't get as many innings as she um, should have when you just look at the ERAs. And um, then you bring in the pitchers that, uh, that we're bringing in. You know, pitching is still going to be a strength for us. Um, we're probably be a little bit better on defense with all of our infielders settling in. So I think that we're still going to, we're going to have a pretty good team going to be fun to watch you continue to build. What a wonderful year, 56 wins. Congratulations on all the accomplishments. Thank you very much. She is head coach Jessica Allister on Minnesota Matters. Thank you, Mike. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.